This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So this uh, morning we continue in our sermon series on the the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, His friends that he had ministered to and he had cared about, he had loved, uh, he had um, just shared the gospel with them. Uh, Remember that the city of Corinth was a a financial center. It was positioned in a place uh, in the world where people would come and go and trade. It was also the site of the temple of Aphrodite, uh, which was a, a magnificent worldly temple uh, where people would come and offer their cult worship uh, through uh, the giving of alms and the partaking of sex. So the city of Corinth was a a place, uh, was thoroughly pagan in its orientation, a wealthy, sexually promiscuous, uh, and full of people uh, that were living the dream, living that lifestyle. And yet Paul had visited them and ministered to them, and a, and a church began. A group of people who were committed to the gospel to, to come out of that way of life and to desire to follow and trust in, in Jesus. And so Paul offers this letter to us as people who are seeking to, to recalibrate our lives to be in line with the truth of the gospel. The theme uh, word for the series is to recalibrate. And I've been trying to come up with different examples of how things can be recalibrated. And I have the perfect one for this week. The perfect example of how you need to be recalibrated in line with the gospel. Here's a real world example. Let's say you have a giant balloon that you want to launch. (laughs) And you want to send this balloon just the right height so that you can observe the world around me. You want to get some data. You want to observe the world. And so you launch this balloon. And you let it drift at altitude up into the wind. But for some reason, maybe the steering components of the balloon either don't take you in the way you want the balloon to go or actually do take you in the direction of the balloon you want to go, depending on your political nation, as it were. But nevertheless, the balloon steering device actually takes you into foreign territory where you're in exceeding danger and your balloon gets shot down. Brothers and sisters, if you are not recalibrating your life in accordance with the gospel, your balloon will get shot down. Amen? Amen. America! (laughs) So we want to recalibrate our lives in accordance with the word of God. Now, hopefully some political incident of a nature this week will happen, so I'll have another example to share with you on Sunday. But we want to recalibrate our lives with the gospel. We want to be steering our lives and ordering ourselves with the word of God. And that's what Paul is reminding his brothers and sisters of in Corinth, because he loves them. Remember, he's been caring for them. He's been encouraging them. He's thanking God for them. And he's written these, this letter and another letter, and even a couple others that we don't even have anymore. And he's wanting them to, to flourish. And here's the thing. I want you to flourish. I want to flourish. And the way that I can flourish is to study God's word, to meditate on it in community with other people, and then to seek to apply it to my life. Is that we do what it says because we've seen what God has done. And that's the gospel. We hear what God's done, we see what he's done, we listen to his word, and we, we live it out. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. Let's begin with a, with a word of prayer. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, this, these, these letters that, that people of faith wrote to other believers in similar contexts. Help us to understand what Paul is saying to the Corinthians so that we can make an application in our lives today, so that we can flourish, that we can live in line with the gospel and have our lives calibrated according to your word. So we thank you, Lord, for this time and pray that you would speak to us now through your word so that we might be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, do you know who said this phrase? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Have you heard the phrase? Yes. Do you know who said it? Anyone? Oscar Wilde. It's amazing what you can Google 10 minutes before a sermon, right? No. Oscar Wilde said that. He was, a, he was an Irish poet, an author. Uh, maybe one of his most famous works was The Picture of Dorian Gray, uh, which is a fascinating story. And uh, I don't know why Oscar Wilde made that statement, but maybe people were trying to imitate his art. Hopefully, they weren't trying to imitate his life, because it was kind of kind of weird, honestly. But imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. I think there's some truth in that. And I think that the Apostle Paul uh, has that idea in his mind, even though he's doing it way before Oscar Wilde. Because in the passage that we're going to study today, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, all the way down in, in verse 16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul says, I urge you to be imitators of me. Later in in 1 Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is an important idea for the Apostle Paul. He wants the Corinthians to imitate him. Now, listen, let me think about, let me just say this here. I don't think that Paul has a puffed up version of himself. I think if there's anybody in all of history who understands who he really is, it's the Apostle Paul. We've learned about what Paul has said as we studied Romans, right? He said, he said that uh, no one is righteous, no, not one. One of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is he says, I am the least of the apostles. Now you think, well, you know, that's pretty humble, right? Of all the apostles, Paul is the least of them, but he's still saying he's an apostle, right? He's the least of the apostles. In a letter that he writes even later in his life, In Ephesians, he says, I'm the least of the saints. Kind of gives himself a demotion there, right? Least of the apostles, now least of the saints. In one of his last letters that he writes, 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Whoa. You would think that a guy on mission with Jesus, like Paul, he would be going up the ladder. Instead of saying least of the apostles, he'd say, well, I'm in the top tier of the apostles. And at the end of his life, he would say, I'm the number one of the apostles. But he's given himself a demotion. Why? Because as he follows Jesus, he realized how far from Jesus he really is. But that does not give him an inferiority complex. It doesn't make him feel sad or depressed or lonely or isolated. He realizes that he's that different from Jesus. And yet Jesus went all that way to get him to rescue him, to save him, and to love him. The farther he realizes he is away from Jesus, the more significant what Jesus did for him becomes to him. So he's gladly willing to say, I'm the chief of all the sinners. I'm the worst one there is because I've looked into the heart of Jesus and I know how far from him I am. And yet I know how deeply and truly loved I am. What a beautiful picture that is. 
So Paul is not full of himself when he says, imitate me. He's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we need people in our lives to show us what it means to follow Christ. Now, none of us are a perfect example of that. Right? We all know our brokenness. Right? We all know our struggle and our bitterness and our anger and all those things, how they come up. But people in your life need to see someone following Christ with all the brokenness and the, the hardship and the joy that that brings. They don't need a perfect example. They need a living example. Right? How are people going to know who Jesus really is if they just listen to what is said about him on TV? They're not going to really understand who Jesus is. And the best way for the people in your life to see who Jesus really is, is as you seek to follow him. And so Paul is encouraging his brothers and sisters in Corinthians, in Corinth. He says, be an imitator of me because I'm trying to follow Jesus as best I know how. And in the same way, friends, the privilege that we have of knowing Jesus is to show people who are around us what it looks like to follow Jesus, not perfectly, but with humility, with love, and with joy, so that they can get a true picture of what Jesus is really like. So Paul is sharing with us about how we are called to be stewards of the mystery of Christ. Look at verse 1. I'm not going to read it. I didn't read it to you before, but we're going to read it all together at some point. It's a whole passage. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. If you have a Bible, it's great to open it, to see the words and to look at them and to understand that, that cements it in your mind. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul is talking about apostles, leaders, teachers, those who are stewards of the ministry of Christ. Now, a lot of people think he's only talking about apostles and teachers and leaders. And I think there's a sense in which he is talking about those who bring the word of God and share it. But I think, hey, listen, anybody who's been given the gospel, anyone who understands and knows that, that Jesus came, he lived his life perfectly, he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead, anyone who's been given that message is a steward of that message. So what's a steward? A steward is not the owner of the message. A steward is one who is to care for the message. He talks about the mystery, right? Earlier in the service, I talked about how a mystery is not a secret that's hidden. It is something that's being revealed over time. And if the message of the gospel has been revealed to you, like if you understand what Jesus did, and that's been something that has been put in your heart by God, then you're a steward of it. And so what do stewards do? They manage it wisely. They take care of it. They don't own it but they honor the master who is the owner of the message, regardless of what other people say about the message or about the implications of the message. You're not accountable to other people who don't believe the message. You're accountable to the one who's given you the message. And so in that sense, I think everybody here, everyone who's listening to me that understands the gospel is a steward of the mystery. It's been something that's entrusted to you. And so the question for you this morning is, how are you stewarding that message? Are you honoring that message by doing the will of the one who's given you the message? Now, you're going to do it in a different way than I do it. It's different for every person. Each of us has a different gifting and personality and age and 
gender and all those things. We're all different in the way that we've been entrusted with this steward. It's the same message, but we've all been entrusted with it. So the question is not, well, how do I do it like Matt? The question is, how do you do it the way God would have you to do it? That's something I want you to be thinking about. So he gives us these examples of how we are to, to steward the mystery, right? One of the first ways that we steward the mystery is with faithfulness. Faithfulness. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The perfect setup for point number one, beginning with the letter F, faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, if you remember from before, Paul was concerned about the division in the Corinthian church because some were saying, hey, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. There's this uh, disagreement in the church about who to follow. But the question they may be asking is, well, who's a better preacher? Who's a more pastoral person? Who's got the gift of ministry? Who should I really follow? Who is the one who's the most faithful steward of the ministry of God? Remember last week I talked about in our culture today, especially in the Christian church, there, well, I'm a follower of John Calvin, or I'm a follower of so-and-so, and I follow this person. And, and I mentioned that we should be thankful for the teachers that we've been given, but we always want to go back to the Word of God. Say, are we following Jesus, and is what this teacher saying line up with the Word of God? Remember, a steward is the one who serves the master. The steward doesn't own anything, but is responsible for what the master gives him, even if it makes him unpopular with others in the household. The true test of a steward is, have they been faithful to the master? Paul is asking them, have I been faithful? And he goes into this aspect of who is judging who. Ultimately, it comes down to, has Paul been faithful to the master? Recognizing that different people have different gifts, but are they faithful to the master? If you think about how even Paul came to Corinth in the first place, we have to look and see. This is how Paul has demonstrated over time his faithfulness. If you read through the, uh, the letter or the book of Acts, chapter 16. It says, when they came to the border of Mysia, Paul was on a missionary journey, he says, came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Wouldn't it be great if you were asking God, what should I do? And you had a vision of a man saying, go and do this. Doesn't work that way for us all the time, but it did for Paul in that moment. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We learned that Paul has a plan. He's executing his plan. He has a vision of where he wants to go, 
But when he hits a roadblock, when he hits something that stops him, he prays and he listens and he says, God, what is it that you want me to do? And there he receives a vision. He receives a new vision, a new direction to go. And what does he do? He does it. Eventually, he got to Corinth. He stopped first in Philippi and he met Lydia. But then he made his way to Corinth. And, you know, if I'm Paul and I'm thinking about, hey, let's do a missionary journey to a different city, a different region. I'm not going to Corinth. I'm not going to the place where the temple of Aphrodite is. That wouldn't be the place where I would say, hmm, that's where I want to be. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He has the traditions of his fathers. He's got to be thinking, those people aren't going to accept me. Why would I want to go to the place that has no gospel church already? The place... That's a temple to the patron saint of prostitution. Doesn't seem like a, much of a plan. But God had a different plan. Hey, Noah, build this ark. Hey, Israelites, march around the fortified city of Jericho and don't use your weapons, just blow trumpets and yell. Hey, Peter, why don't you get out of the boat and walk on the water? Hey, believer, why don't you read my word and listen to it and trust me enough to obey it in your life when it doesn't seem like the best plan. Be faithful. The second way that we're called to steward the mystery of the gospel is by being foolish. Being foolish. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says we are fools for Christ's sake. Fools for Christ's sake. Now that's very different than being a fool. If you read through Proverbs, and we know that the Corinthians had a wisdom of the world that they ascribed to, we know that God's wisdom is different. We're encouraging you to, to think through what does wisdom look like in your life? And one of the best resources for wisdom, God's wisdom, that you can get if you ask God by reading his word is the, the book of Proverbs. And it talks often there about the fool. Paul is not encouraging us to be a fool like the one in Proverbs. He's talking to us about being a fool for Christ. What does that mean? Look at Paul. He he talks about his deficiencies. He says, we're weak, we're held in disrepute, we hunger, and we thirst. All these things make him vulnerable. He is vulnerable. He's got to depend on other people. Imagine being hungry and thirsty and needing provision of the Lord. He is poorly dressed. He is buffeted, homeless. 
He labors with work with his hands. He is reviled, persecuted, slandered. He even says he's the scum of the world. It's not a pretty list, and yet it's what Paul claims about himself because he's not concerned about the image that people have of him. He's concerned about the image that people have of Jesus. And boy, that's a tough one for us today, isn't it? So often we're concerned, well, what will people think? Well, how will it turn out? Will I be accepted? Will I be embraced? Will, will, think, will my reputation be honored? And those are all natural things that we think about because we want to present ourselves as, as good people. But Paul is saying not to account what people think about us, but what Jesus thinks about us. Are we honoring Jesus with our lives? Are we honoring Jesus with our resources? Are we honoring Jesus with the way we go about what we go about? Are we acting with integrity in our jobs? Are we loving our spouse? Are we loving our children? Are we caring for our community, regardless of what people say? You see, Paul counts all those things as nothing. He says he's the scum of the earth. Now we know, look, that Paul is also a rhetorical genius. Because he's framing himself in light of the wisdom of the world that is being taught in Corinth. He's battling an entire culture that has said, this is the way that you have life. Get the money that you need. Have the experiences that you want. Indulge yourself in whatever way you feel. That's how you have life. And Paul is saying, resist that way of life. Find your life in Christ. Submit your passions to the Lord and then use your passions for the Lord. Give yourself unto Jesus in every way. You see, he's framing himself in a posture of humility to teach these wise Corinthians and all that they know about their worldliness. And so instead of asserting his authority, he humbles himself. What is the benefit of this? Now look, we live in a world where everybody wants the answers, but it seems that the answers are even harder to find, and yet everyone has become an expert. But when an age, in an age when the truth is up for grabs, people are in need of something to hold on to. We live in an age of information overload. How do you trust anything? Think about all of the misinformation and disinformation about COVID. Mass or no mass? Vaccination or no vaccination? And social media amplifies all the voices, all the bad takes. Suddenly, your friends from high school have become experts on disease control, whereas two weeks ago they were posting cat memes. How do you know who to trust? Paul's not saying, trust me. He's saying, trust God. And he's willing to humble himself before God to demonstrate the fact that he is trustworthy. So here's the question. Who are you listening to today? as you shape and form your, your picture of what is right. I mean, just think about the balloon this week. How many hot takes were there about the balloon? What should be done categorically? This happened, this never happened before. Well, this will always happen. This is the way that we should do it. It's a balloon. Are there implications? I don't know. And yet, certain people had a lot of understanding about what we ought to do or not do with a balloon. And it's just a balloon. Are you listening to people that say, this is absolutely what we must do about the balloon? 
Or are you listening to people who say, well, you know, on the one hand, we could do this, but that would lead to this. And so if we do that, then this could happen. And on the other hand, this is possible. So I want you to be thinking about this just in case. Now, does that mean you're not making a decision? No. But it means you're taking into account the nuances of life. And guys, cable news is not built on nuance. It's not built on coming to an understanding with divergent points of view so that we can make the best decision possible. And yes, you have to make a decision, but you realize often you make decisions that aren't the right ones and you don't know until later. I was talking to Tim Balducci the other day and, and he was saying, he goes, I read this article and he just said, you know, about COVID, we just need to forgive each other about COVID. Because what did we know? Here we are three years later, and we still don't know. And everybody made decisions that probably weren't the best, but everyone was trying to do the best they could. Let's just forgive each other for COVID. Don't forgive COVID. Send COVID to hell as far as I'm concerned. But let's forgive one another for the decisions that we made that maybe weren't right. And then what should we do right now is to say there's nuance in life. See, cable news is built on people having hot takes this way or that way. And guys, logarithms, right? You're feeding into it by clicking and liking and entering into if you're not listening to people who have nuance and say, let's take this in a measured way. You have to make decisions. You sure do. But being wise means being a fool for Christ, trusting in Jesus and being able to look around the world and say, to whom am I looking for my guidance on certain matters? Are those people who have my best interest, or do they just want me to put eyeballs on their commercials? you got to be thinking about that. And finally, being stewards of the mystery means that we are to be fatherly. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will, find out not, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul uses another image of family. Right? He's called them brothers and sisters. He now refers to himself as their father. Corinthians, I am your father. This image is a blessed, sorry, dad joke there. Uh, teenagers are shaking their heads. This image of father is a blessing, right? Because what do good fathers do? They love their children. They care for them. They provide for them. They give them structure. They give them discipline. They care for them in every single way. A good father does. Paul has demonstrated to them that he's their father. He has done these things. He, he brought the gospel to them. He shared with him the great news of Jesus that the way of life that they were entering into and living was not good for their long-term flourishing. They needed to be recalibrated with the word of God. He brought them that message. And then now that he's gone, 
He's writing them a letter to help them navigate the complexities and the difficulties of church life. And one little sidebar here, it's encouraging for me to know that churches get established and planted, and then occasionally people need to write them a letter to say, hey, here's what's going wrong in your church. It's not this idea that you can plant a church and from henceforth forevermore there will be no problems. Paul writes a letter to the church in Galatia, in, in Ephesus, in Corinth, right? Because there are problems that happen in churches that need to be addressed. Now, we don't need a new letter. We need to know the letters that God has already given to us to help us deal with the problems that we have. And next week, just wait. It's a big, fun problem. You do not want to meet, miss next week's problem. Do not read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 between now and next week. Whatever you do, don't read it. <laughs> it's really bad. Can't wait till next week. But Paul has demonstrated that he's their father, he, and he's proven these things to them. And when we love people, we want to care for them in the same way, right? We want to encourage them and to provide for them and to give them structure and discipline. And look at what he says. One of the things that he does, one of the things that he does, all right, it's almost time to go. We're going to take communion here in a little bit. One of the things that he does is he says, verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. One of the things that Paul does to love them as a father is to send them Timothy. Now, who's Timothy? You may remember that Timothy was someone that Paul had taught the faith, right? Paul writes letters to Timothy. Timothy is one of his commissioned uh, ministers of the gospel. He, he loved Timothy. But what's interesting about Timothy is that Timothy had a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. Right, remember, you remember that uh, in the Bible it says that his mother was Eunice and his grandmother was Lois, but it was likely that his father was a Greek. Now, if you've got a Jewish mom and a Greek dad, what you get when you combine a Jewish mom and a Greek dad is a mumser. You remember I've ever said this word? It's a mumser. It's an illegitimate birth. So, to the Jews, Timothy was one of those nasty Greeks. And to the Greeks, Timothy was one of those nasty Jews. He had no home. He had no community. He didn't belong. And when Paul came to Timothy's town, Paul was stoned. I mean, he's getting hit by rocks. He got hit by rocks, and guess what he did? He walked up and he went back into the city. And then he came back to preach the same message of the gospel after being thrown out by the city leaders by their attempted murder. He came back and preached the gospel. So when Timothy saw the passion and the compassion of Paul, Timothy said, this is a man that I've got to follow. This is a man that I want to be connected to. This is a man who loves me despite the fact that I've got one kind of dad and one kind of mom. And so Timothy followed Paul. Well, think about this letter. To whom is it being written? It's the people of the church of Corinth. How many people live in a city where one of the biggest uh, job opportunities is prostitute? How many illegitimate kids who are now adults live in the city of Corinth? And yet Timothy is the one that Paul sends. He himself is a mumser. 
They themselves are mumsers. And yet the message of the gospel is for people who don't belong. It's for people who aren't accepted. It's for people that don't have it all together. It's for people who are broken and suffering and struggling to make it through this life. And if that's you, if you can acknowledge that you're not perfect, that you're broken, that you have need, then the message of the gospel is for you. If you think you've got it all together, then it's not for you. You stand before God on your own. Fine. But for those of us who know we're broken, who know we're in need, who are mumsers, it's the message of hope. And what a great message it is. Because it gives us a sense of who we are in a new way that we could never achieve with reputation or education or money or beauty. It's a message that is imputed to us. It's given to us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And man, what a glorious thing that is. It's not about words, Paul says. It's about power. And when you know who you are in Christ, you have power. Power not to get what you want. Power to serve. Power to love the people who are around you in a faithful way. In a foolish way. In a fatherly way. Because it's worth it for them to see the beauty of the gospel in the way that God has revealed it to you. And so that's our commission. That's our responsibility. Is that God would use the brokenness in us to accomplish his purpose by loving the people around us in word and deed. Not, not clever words and like formulas, but in a life that is submitted to Jesus. Caring, serving, loving, being open. Are you open to the ways that God wants to use you? Who are the people that God has put around you? Remember, the, the, the wisdom of God is better than the foolishness of man. You don't have to be brilliant. You just simply be available and be open. So who's the person in your life right now that is, is open? The only sometimes way you can know if a, if a door is open is if you, you pull on the door, right? You've got to pull on the handle to see if it's open. If it's open, it's open. You open it. And you just ask people. You say, are you open? Let me tell you about what God's doing in my life. Let me just tell you a story. Here's a prayer that I was praying that I just struggled with, and here's how God answered it. Can I pray for you? Man, I know that you've been going through this really difficult thing, and I don't know, I don't know if this is helpful at all, but I was going through something difficult as well. And I know it's not exactly what you've been going through, but it was really, really hard for me. And man, when I, when I just asked God to sustain me, to help me in it, he really did. And I just want to encourage you that God is going to be with you if you ask him to be. Like, that's it. It's just something like that. What a blessing and a privilege to be faithful, to be foolish, and to be fatherly to the people that God has put around us, to, to encourage them to imitate us as we imitate Christ. And, and if you feel like you're not equipped to do it, that's okay. He doesn't equip the called. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Sorry. And if you've been called by God, then you will be equipped. He'll give you the words to say. He'll give you the ministry. You don't have to do it perfectly. You just say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. Will you say yes to the Lord? There's only one answer. Say yes, somebody. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. 
Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandprez.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.